Once again, um, so we are smack dab in the middle of a series that we're, that's going to take us all the way through Advent. So basically, after uh, Thanksgiving, we're going to start a new series, and I'm really excited for what we're going to do during Advent because um, I get really fired up over like the nerdy details of the Bible. Uh, and what we're going to do is take apart, basically deconstruct the Christmas story. Uh, the story that we all know with like the nativity scene, all that kind of stuff. What does it all really mean? Is it really true? Is it worth it? What do we, like every single year, why do we come back to this story and what does it have to tell us about sort of the end of our year cycle and what's going to happen in the new year? What does baby Jesus mean? What does all of this stuff mean? So um, that's super exciting uh, and that's going to begin right after Thanksgiving. Uh, but for now, we're doing this fun series where we're kind of talking about moments in church, and I mean church capital C, uh, we do enough of uh, deconstructing what we do here, but church capital C, uh, moments in church where we seem to have missed the mark. Um, and I mean, unsurprisingly, that, that happens a lot. So there's a lot of people, uh, the Catholics will call these people saints, um, who, who would at first were labeled uh, heretics. So they were labeled like they were thinking outside the box, they took it too far, and so for the church at that point, they said, these people are outside, they're excommunicated, or worse, we're going to put them to death because of the beliefs that they have, because they believe that the earth is actually round, or they believe in like just these fundamental truths that we know are true now, but then it seems so radical that the church could not get their heads around it. And so what we're trying to do is take uh, prophets who were outside the system as well. The, the whole Jewish system at the time, when a prophet would show up, they were the type of people, and here's how you knew a prophet, they were not very well liked. So we read stories around them like, oh, they're these great figures of, of uh, our whole religion, and, and they're literally like turning points in the way that we think about God. But to the people at the time, they were just kind of annoying. <laughs> so they would show up and they would proclaim this new truth, or they would proclaim a truth that God had given to them, and they would make everybody uncomfortable. And so oftentimes, they would not even complete the task that they had come to do until years and years and years after their death. Because it took, it was this long tail idea, it took the church or it took the people at that time years and years and years to finally comprehend, oh, that's what he was saying. And I think so much of scripture is literally, we're still doing that. We're looking at the stuff in the stories and the scripts and all that kind of stuff. And we're looking at it and we're going, oh, that's what he meant there. My favorite uh, version of this is uh, Peter. Peter's a disciple. Uh, he's known as like kind of the most brash disciple there was. Disciples were these guys that gave up everything in their whole lives just to follow in the footsteps of Jesus while he was walking around on earth. Uh, and Peter is known as this brash. He jumps in first. He's always the guy that's going to blurt something out. He's an early adopter, but he's also the slowest leader in the bunch. So Christ's last sort of like thing to all of his followers as they, before he ascends, right? That's a whole other sermon. How does that work? Uh, but before he ascends, he literally gives this to his followers. He says, go out into all nations and of all people and create disciples, right? That's his last thing. So he's basically saying like, okay, guys, leave the farm, right? You've got all you need. Now go out, go out into the world and do this. And then as we read the book of Acts, it's like until chapter 14, which is essentially years go by, and they're just a block away from where Jesus ascended from, right? So they're not moving. And then so at this point, 
Peter is, is asked into the home of a Gentile, which is a huge deal, even to step in to a home of a Gentile, would completely mark you as unclean. And he does that. He takes that step. And as he takes that step, he looks around. And again, this is years after Jesus said, go out to all people. He says this. He says, I'm beginning to see that Christ's word is for all people. <laughs> and God must be looking down going like, yes, Peter, gosh, finally. Like, how could you have missed it for so long? Right? But that's the human way. We're naturally like adverse to newness, to new things. New things scare us because we can't pin them down and we can't actually define them yet. But here's the whole tradition of Christianity. That's okay. You were never meant to have it all figured out. You are meant to be in constant process. This is a practice. It's following. Jesus almost never says, worship me, but he always says, follow me. Follow me. There's going to be new things along the way. He even said, you're going to do greater things than these. But so often we kind of treat the Bible and the text and even, in all honesty, our faith, like it's something that's no longer alive. And when we do that, we stop dead in our tracks. We're holding on too tightly to the old stuff and not understanding that Jesus is always moving. He's alive. And if we believe that, that means he's always on the move. So this morning... Uh, to juxtapose, I want to juxtapose a physical space uh, with a, a, a prophet and then also a saint. Um, but the prophet is actually going to be the prodigal son. So we're going to view the prodigal son as a prophet this morning, which is kind of a different way of looking at it. And uh, we're going to juxtapose that with St. Francis. And then we're also going to talk about this place, this physical space in the scripture that's known as the wilderness. So the wilderness is this in-between space. It's mentioned over 400 times in scripture. 400 times. Imagine saying something 400 times over. Like, it's just, it's redundant to a certain point. But the reason is, if you were in this ancient society, you would live in villages or you would live in the cities, and everywhere in between there was this blank space called the wilderness. And the wilderness was scary. The wilderness was empty. The wilderness was this in-between, this messy middle in between where you were and where you're going. And honestly, and we don't talk about this enough, we spend most of our lives in that space from where we're coming from to where we're going. The mountaintop moments are super brief, but we spend a lot of time in the in-between. That's where life is lived. And so the scripture really points out a bunch that actually a lot of the stuff that you're learning about the kingdom, a lot of the stuff that Jesus is saying, a lot of it has to do with this messy middle period, this period where we're just in limbo, right? So instead of talking about like, the big, huge problems that we have or the devastating lows, I want to talk about something a little bit more sneaky this morning, and I think it's actually way bigger than even the big stuff. And that's this idea of discontentment. So discontentment is that feeling, and this, discontentment loves this stage of life. When you're asked, hey, what's new? And you kind of go like, nothing really, we're just kind of humming along. That is a fine answer. That is what you work hard to answer for. And yet, for some reason in our brains, whenever I answer, like, if someone's like, what's new? And you're like, I, I just watched a lot of TV this week. I got nothing to say, right? <laughs> like, like I, that's actually a good thing. You earned that right. Like, so next time someone says, like, I mean, it's just kind of rolling along, give them a hug. They earned that, right? But the, the biggest deal is when we get to these places where we think, like, oh, oh, I'm not, oh, I'm not doing anything else. Discontentment loves to turn stillness, which is what we work so hard for, which is what we earned, it loves to turn that stillness into stuckness, right? 
So in a moment where you actually should be still and you should be completely planted where you are and you should be so grateful for everything that's going on around you, there's breath in your lungs, you are living life, and you're in the here and you're in the now, the discontentment loves to come around and kind of go like, oh, yeah, but it could be more, <laughs> right? Like there could be something else that you could be doing. You could be a little bit more successful. You could have this title. You could have this relationship. You could be here in life. And discontentment, like a little snake in the grass, is so good at growing larger and larger and larger and larger and larger in our lives. Before we know it, it's taken over everything. DUIs, divorces, relationship enders, explosive fights, all of these are symptoms of long stretches of discontentment. Right? I call these moments dad at the bank moments. These are the moments that for some reason your dad gets furious at someone for no apparent reason at all, just because he's in the bank or it's at like a car dealership. It's one of those moments where you just, it just explodes. And you're like, I didn't know that was in there. Um, it's discontentment that's just welled up inside of our souls and something comes along and breaks it and it ends in explosions. Discontentment is so powerful because we're so good at letting it do its own thing. We welcome it in with open arms. Just like, yes, you're supposed to be here. I am supposed to be feeling this awful feeling. I'm supposed to be stressed nonstop. I'm supposed to be sweating right now, right? Like we just welcome, like here, have a, have a couch, have a bed. I'll come check on you all the time. We make room for that space in our hearts. And yet we have such a hard time making room for joy and love and especially this idea of stillness that you may be exactly where you need to be, right here, right now. Someone who understood this really, really well uh, is a guy named St. Francis. So St. Francis of Assisi was this wonderful human being. Um, he's written about more than any other saint in the Catholic tradition. Uh, and then actually, he's talked about as the second coming of Christ more in any other tradition than our own. He, he is no, like there are more pictures of him painted than any other saint. He completely transformed the way that the church moved and operated. And the most beautiful thing about it is he did that in a way that was so beautiful and submersive and loving that he's the only saint. Most of the time we get like, it's like a hundred years before they declare someone a saint. It only took St. Francis, who was never actually ordained as a priest, four years after his death before they completely said, this guy had it all. He is a saint. And what that comes from, St. Francis was from a really wealthy family. I mean, like, he was about to get the keys to the kingdom. His dad was a wealthy merchant, so he had everything lined up for him. He was very well educated. He was able to excel in almost everything that he did. And so as he, as he made a decision to uh, commit his life to a priestly tradition, he goes through the seminary stuff, he goes through the training, and then at the very end of it, the priests are just, the, the church is ecstatic to have this individual. Number one, he's very bright and he's charismatic and people seem to be following him everywhere. But more so, number two, his dad is very wealthy and will get a lot of money, <laughs> right? So they're about to open their arms and just say, hey, come in here. And this really interesting story happens where St. Francis is alone in the wilderness, in the woods. He's outside. He's outside the system. And he said he heard the voice of God say, Francis, rebuild my church, for you see it's in ruin. And the interesting thing is, Francis said, I had never looked at the church as it was in ruin. I was trained to become a priest. But the voice from God says, you see that it's in ruin. And he says, rebuild it. And so what does Francis do? He doesn't run away from it and say, well, it's all broken and it's all going to hell in a handbasket anyway, so I'll, I'll just get out of Dodge. 
And he doesn't go back inside of it and become a priest and try and destroy it from the inside. What he does is the most loving thing he could possibly do, which is just to step a little bit outside the system, to deny the priesthood, to just pick up this idea of being a friar, which basically means you are mobile. You are not just in one space. You are able to go and you are able to serve in other communities and take this message around, which is what he actually saw in Jesus. And so he goes, I'm going to take on this tradition lovingly, and he did so, so miraculously. People just naturally wanted to follow this guy, even during his lifetime. He had crowds of thousands, but it never went to his head. He would like speak in front of thousands of people. He would wow them with sort of this really simplistic version of Christianity, like strip it all down. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about living simply. Let's talk about a vow of poverty. Like all these radical ideas that the church just was not talking about at this time. And then he would turn around and he would go to the woods and he would just talk to animals. So the guy was on like both levels. Like he was in front of thousands of people and then he was literally giving sermons to rabbits who did not care what he had to say, but he felt like God loves the animals too. So this guy's incredible. He's moving in both ways. And so one day he's coming back uh, from probably speaking to a couple rabbits and he comes back um, to his home and he, he crosses this, uh, this other, this fellow brother, his brother Maceo. And brother Maceo, kind of uh, begrudgingly and probably somewhat jealous, he goes, why you? Why, and he says, why after you? Why after you? Why after you? You're not a handsome man. <laughs> You're not very well educated. You're not a nobleman. Why is it that it seems like the whole world is chasing after you? And Francis could have replied, because I'm awesome. He could have replied, I don't know. He could have replied, because I'm doing the work. Here's what he says, and it's the first uh, slide we have. He says, I have this from all holy eyes of God uh, that see the good and the evil everywhere. For those blessed and all holy eyes have not seen among sinners any more vile or insufficient than I am. And so in order to do what wonderful work which he intends to do, he did not find on earth a more ordinary creature, and therefore he chose me. For Francis, the very fact that he was ordinary was what made him extraordinary to God. It wasn't in the fancy church buildings. It wasn't in the money of the merchants. It was in the ordinary that he found God. You know what the only difference between ordinary and extraordinary is? It's the extra, <laughs> which is the best line I could ever... It, it, God does not care about your extra, right? All we need is the ordinary, the what's right here, what's right now. Francis's nightly prayer. Again, this is a guy who helped shape the very religion we practice right now and helped shape our very view of God. And his nightly prayer, every night before he went to bed, he would pray this over and over again. He would pray, God, who are you and who am I? God, who are you and who am I? Now, you would think for someone that shaped this thing so incredibly that those are the two things that he would really have pinned down, Right? He would know who God is, and he would know who he was. But night after night, almost as a reminder that he is radically unfinished, and that's okay, he would pray, God, who are you, and who am I? It's not about being complete or finished. And discontent is that thing that comes in and it tells us you're not finished, so you're broken and you're wrong. But it's grace and it's love that comes in and says, no, because you're not finished. You are loved exactly the way you are. Because you are ordinary, you are loved exactly the way that you are. And so our rhythm should always be, God, who are you and who am I? Who are you and who am I? Because that's the loving approach 
It's not, I have it all pinned down and everyone else is wrong. It's a constant check-in with God to make sure that we're still understanding just who he is and what that means to who we are, how that shapes our identity. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, he shows up to this enormous culture of discontentment. You have a, a people that he was a part of, these Israelites, these, these Jewish people, who have been triple taxed by the system. So if you were trying to live in piety and you're trying to be a really good person, uh, you would pay three taxes. One was to Herod, uh, who was like kind of the local governor, but he was also sort of involved with the Roman government. So basically you'd pay Herod to go pay Rome, but then you also had to pay Rome. And on top of that, if you were being a pious religious person, you had to pay your tax to the temple. Tithing, right? We could talk about that sometimes, but tithing. So you had to do that, you had to pay to the government, and you had to pay to the other government. And by the time all of those came, you were literally almost broke. There was only enough money. These are substantiate farmers. That means that they would farm all day to literally make enough money for one single meal. And on top of that, you had your own people, because this Roman government was really good at empire and really good at keeping people just docile and down. So they would pick someone, one of your people, and say, hey, I'll make you fabulously wealthy, like crazy rich, if you can go ahead and tax your own people. And I'll tell you what, you're going to have centurion guards with you, so you can go ahead and really ask for whatever you want. So if you want to take a little bit off the top, that's totally okay too. And they did that because they wanted those people to be so happy in that role that they would never leave. So you'd get your own person. This could be a person. This is a village society. This is a person you might have gone to school with. This is a person you've worked alongside with since you were a child. These are people that you would know, and then all of a sudden they're showing up at your door with two armed guards, and they're telling you a number that is so much higher than what you really owe. And if you don't pay it, you're going to be beaten, you're going to be thrown in jail, or worse. This is the scene that Jesus is showing up in. And so when he comes in, the way that he dismantles this discontent is not through malcontent, it's not through fighting, and it wasn't through running away, which is just cowardice. What he did was he met it somewhere in the middle. He went through it, and he actually solved it with grace. See, so much of the time, when we are discontent, and I can personally speak for my generation, when you're discontent, the immediate thing is to hit the eject button. I'm not happy with my job, eject. I didn't like what the pastor said that week, eject. I'm not getting what I deserve, eject. Right? There's this, this, this belief that there is no stillness, there's only stuckness, and if you're not constantly moving up the ranks or you're not here at this point or you don't have this box checked, then you're not a decent human being. But it's the exact opposite of what God really, really wants for you. What God wants for you is always a trip back further in. It's always a return. It's never an escape, because those problems are going to follow you wherever you go. It's never a fight, like I need to tear this whole thing down, because you won't win against powers that are more extreme than you are. It's always a retreat inward. That's grace. I love, and this is going to be fun, I'm going to talk about Ram Dass and church. I love uh, Ram Dass, and Ram Dass um, is this guy uh, who experimented with a bunch of psychedelics. That part we don't need to talk about. Uh, the rest of the part is he, he went to India, he got enlightened, uh, and then he came back with all this sort of wisdom about being present and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but he tells this wonderful story. He was uh, a Harvard professor. He's kind of, he had it all. Um, he, he excelled in everything in life. He, at every party he went to, people wanted to talk to him because he's the Harvard professor, right? Like, he's, he's the smartest one in this room. He had 
tons of money. He was writing tons of books and studies and stuff, and he was like living his life going on. He got his pilot's license, so he's flying around the world. He's on boats, having parties, all this kind of stuff. And he said, in the midst of it all, I had everything. And at the same time, there was just this malaise, this discontentment, this depression, that something was missing. And then he said he realized, I then realized that that malaise was actually grace, and it was pointing that there could be something more in my life. Sometimes discontentment, this malaise, this feel that we have that like, oh, I'm not where I'm supposed to be, can actually be a good thing. It can turn itself into grace. It can show us. It can tell the truth of the moment more than we can tell the truth of the moment. My favorite philosophers is this guy named Pete Rollins. He's this Irishman, so even if it's not smart what he says, you're still sitting there like, ooh, that sounded really good. Uh, but he talks about the fact that like, alcoholism is a solution, not a problem. Right? The problem is much deeper. The reason this person is, is solving their problems with alcoholism is because they haven't dealt with the problem that's there. So what alcoholism does is it tells the truth of that person's situation, that there is something deeper going on. And that's what grace can do. It can tell the truth of who you are when you can't. That discontent can say, ooh, something's not right. And instead of letting it have all the power, letting it take the steering wheel, we can just let it sit in the back seat and go like, no, okay, you, you stay there. I'm going to control this, but I'm glad you pointed that out. I'm glad we're moving. Thomas Edison said that discontent is the first necessity in progress. And he invented the light bulb, right? Like this, so this stuff, this discontentment, can actually be good. It's just a willingness to engage with it in a proper way. It's a willingness to say, what do you have to teach me? Not, can you please just ruin my life, but what do you actually have to teach me? What, I can, what can I get out of this? And the scriptures have this amazing space called the wilderness in which this happens for all sorts of people in the Bible. So if you run it down from the beginning, this wilderness is this in-between space where you learn something new about God. It's a space where God reveals himself in a different way. And almost every protagonist that we have in the scripture spends some period of time in the wilderness. So if you found yourself in a period of like discontent or disappointment or kind of like, ugh, nothing is going my way, that is actually right where you need to be. And it's affirmed right in here. It's okay to feel that way. It's okay to be in that space. Sometimes God can do more in the wilderness than he can do on the mountaintop or the plateau the valley. The wilderness is where we learn to learn. We learn to actually figure out different ways of God. This happens right from the beginning. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. Where do they go? Into the wilderness. Abraham, uh, who's one of the first fathers, gets called and God says, leave your home and go to this, this land that I have for you. And he travels through the wilderness. Jacob, one of my, he's my favorite Bible character ever. Jacob uh, steals his inheritance from his brother. His brother wants to kill him. So he goes on the run and he goes, where? to the wilderness. And here's where we get to the best part of the story. Jacob's wilderness story includes going into the wilderness, wrestling with God, figuring out all of these new things about who he is and who God is. And then the most interesting thing about the story of Jacob is that he doesn't stay in the wilderness, but rather he returns. He returns to his brother. So there's a return. Again, it's always something inward. It's always something that gets solved here. The wilderness shapes us in ways we don't understand. And then again, we have the story of Moses. Moses kills a guy. This is something we don't talk about often enough in church. Moses kills a guy and then runs out into the wilderness where God reveals himself to him, shapes him, 
and molds him. And then what does God do? Moses said, or God says, Moses, you're going to go back the way you came. Elijah, who's this prophet guy that no one really liked, has this huge fire battle with a king. That's in the Bible. Read it. This stuff is nuts. <laughs> has a battle where he rains down fire upon uh, like th- this whole uh, system. And then he, he's scared for his life because that king wants to kill him now. So he goes into the wilderness to hide. And then God reveals himself in this whole moment where there's this fire, there's an earthquake, there's a giant wind, and then there's a still small voice. And Elijah learns that, oh, God can speak that way too. And then God says something very powerful to Elijah. He says, Elijah, go back the way you came. Return. Return. Jesus does the same thing. He gets baptized, and then where does he go? He goes into the wilderness where he's tested and he's shaped. And then what happens? He doesn't go off and just abandon what, he doesn't fight it. He goes back, he returns with a change in perspective. Every wilderness encounter we have, every stretch of wilderness that you're going to experience is going to change the way you see things. And that's the point. That's the point. Wilderness shapes us. It returns us. And so that's why when Jesus comes back, he uses this word, and I hate that it got translated this way, and I also hate that the church kind of hijacked it, but it's this word repent, right? And everyone who grew up in church just went, <laughs> repent. But repent in the, in the Greek actually means more along the lines of something like change your mind completely. Change your mind completely. So when Jesus comes back and he's preaching this kingdom thing and he's talking about how the kingdom of God is at hand, he says, I want you all to change your minds completely. I want you to rethink everything. And that's what the wilderness can do. It gives us an opportunity to learn a new way of seeing things or learn an entirely new way of being. Um, There's this beautiful poem that kind of hits at this, and I want to read it for us. It's uh, it's called Breathing Underwater. This is breathing underwater. I built my house by the sea, not on the sands, mind you, not on the shifting sand, but I built it out of rock. A strong house by a strong sea, and we got well acquainted, the sea and I, good neighbors. Not that we spoke much, we met in silences, respectful, keeping our distance, but looking our thoughts across the fence of sand, always the fence of sand, our barrier, always the sand between. And then one day, and I still don't know what happened, The sea came without warning, without welcome even, not not sudden and swift, but a shifting across the sand like wine, less like the flow of water than the flow of blood, slow but coming, slow but flowing like an open wound. And I thought of flight, and I thought of drowning, and I thought of death, and while I thought of the sea crept higher till it reached my door, and I knew then there was neither flight nor death nor drowning. That when the sea comes calling, you stop being neighbors, well-acquainted, friendly, at a distant neighbors. You give your house for a coral castle, and you learn to breathe underwater. You give your house for a coral castle, and you learn to breathe underwater. It's not a re-sort of like shaping of old things. It's not a new set of tools. It's a complete overhaul. When these waves, when these problems, when this discontent hits us and it engulfs us, and we've all had moments like this where it seems like it's just uncontrollable, out of control, what the heck is happening? There's always a moment of, I just have to learn how to rethink 
everything. I need to learn to breathe now with not my lungs, but I need to learn how to breathe underwater. There needs to be this whole complete shift. And that's what the wilderness does. It teaches us to breathe underwater. It teaches us that no matter what comes at you, there's always going to be more. It's always going to get better. But it teaches us how to learn. Let's uh, take this idea of going into the wilderness. And what I want to do with us this morning for this last little chunk is I want to take a story that we know really, really well. If you spent any time in church, you've undoubtedly heard this story. Even outside of the church, this has just seeped into our culture. What I want to do with this story is I want to take it into the wilderness, which basically means I want to learn to see it in a completely different way. We're going to teach it to kind of learn to breathe underwater this morning. And that, that story is the story of the prodigal son. So what we're going to do uh, is a very nerdy thing called exegesis. That's a very fancy word. Don't let it scare you. All that means is we're going to go line by line here, and then I'm going to kind of show you maybe things that we didn't see before so that we can learn to see this in a different way. Um, and it won't be, I'm sorry, it won't be line by line. It'll probably be chunk by chunk. Uh, so, okay, this is the parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, so let's pause right there. Uh, usually when we tell the story, it's this really fast thing. We picture the son going to the father and saying, Father, I need my inheritance. Now, you may have heard this before, but basically, if you asked your father for your inheritance before he was dead, it was a cultural significance of saying, I wish you were dead. I want you dead, so please give me my money now because I don't want to be anywhere near you. Now, in my reading about this, I've always heard that, and that's a really interesting fact, and that's fun. The bigger underlying thing that I had never heard before is that this wasn't just a shocker. This had never been done. No one did this. And so, in fact, what scholars think when Jesus was actually telling this story, people may have been freaked out that he was even able to conjure such an idea. <laughs> right? They'd be sitting there going, like, how did he come up with this awful stuff? Like, it's like when you're watching a horror movie and you're like, who writes this? That's Jesus in this moment. He's, he's thinking up something so terrible that people are like, I have never, am I allowed to listen to this story? Like, it's that bad. So, uh, not long after that. So, and we also say it's like a speedy process. Like the dad relents and he goes, okay, and he, and he gives it over. In ancient society, no one carried cash. And if you did, it was buried somewhere in the backyard and it would take a really long time to dig it up. Right? There was no sort of cash pile. The father just would open a door, get a couple bags of gold, come back out and check it at the sun and say, all right, have your way with it. What this would have taken, and this is fascinating, is he would have had to sell off the, the son's inheritance would have been a third of the estate. He would have had to have sold off a third of the estate to his neighbors and the villagers around him. Now let's unpack this picture a little bit. Picture this father going to his neighbor. This is a village honor-shame society, right? You want to remain honorable. Shame is a terrible thing. It'd get you in a lot of trouble. It could have you burning in all damnation forever. So you don't want shame. But what the father does is he goes to his neighbors and he goes to this village and he has to explain, well, uh, my son asked uh, that I would die, so I'm going to go ahead and give him his inheritance. And then they would probably go like, what? <laughs> and then they'd be like, I will gladly buy your goat. So he had to go through and sell all of this stuff so that he could actually give this to his son. This is a painful thing that the entire neighborhood would have been hushing and whispering about. Did you hear about so-and-so and his son and what he asked? Can you even believe that? Yeah, I bought his goat. Like that, that would have been like the conversation going around, right? So th this is a long, drawn-out 
awful process in which the son is still living in the father's home while they're dividing all this stuff up. Can you imagine how tense breakfast would be, right? You're still living in this system. And so it's a slow build. And from the text, what we see here is not long, on, not long after that, which means the son got his inheritance and was planted for a period of time. His first inclination was not that I'm going to go away. It was actually just, give me my inheritance. I want you dead. That was what he told him. And then he just sat in it with his father. Can you imagine the grace of this father to take this for so long and not just want to kill this kid? But then he gets this idea, right? And he says, uh, the son, younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country. Now, distant country is code in the Bible for Gentileville, which basically meant those other people over there that we don't even want to talk about. The word in Hebrew for Gentile is the same for dog, right? They, they had no sort of, like, like, they hated these people. And where does the son go first, right after basically disowning his entire family? He goes to the people that they despise the most, this distant country, this wilderness, Right? Uh, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine that took the whole country, and he began to be in need. So here's the thing, right? Got an honor, shame, village society. If there's a famine on, everybody is dealing with that, from the Gentiles over to the other side of the lake, right? You've got an, a serious issue on your hands. There's no reservoirs. There's likely not a lot of food, so you're dealing with something where everyone is in panic mode, and this guy not only has gotten himself out of the protection of his family, but he's in a foreign land, he's got no more money, and it's a famine, so it's not like people are going to be given handouts. Um, and he began to be in need. Uh, so he went and hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the paws that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Then he came, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. This is the point of return. So he went and he hired him. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Roll once again. Uh, next one. Yeah, sorry, Bobby. I'm so lost. Uh, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your uh, hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. Now this is important here. You've left the village. There's all that whispering, right? Can you believe what so-and-so's son did? Can you believe he left? If you were to enter one of these villages, which is likely where this took place, it's a long walk to a big estate that would have been his father's. You'd have to walk through town to those same people that he sold his goats to, <laughs> to those same people that were whispering little nothings about you. Children would be playing and they would see this guy coming back and a buzz would start coming. Can you believe? The courage of this son, like how, what gall, what complete just arrogance to come back. And so you've got this whole town rustling. And there were literally probably people that were just following him in back to the estate to see what's going to happen. Because they're like, who doesn't love a good bloodbath? Like this dad is going to kill him. So let's all go watch and see, right? Let's grab a pitchforks. So they're, they're following him in. And this is the most incredible moment in this whole thing. Imagine a whole village and this son coming up together, and it's still a long way off, and they're on top of this hill. And just like this tiny little speck, they see this father. We'll pick up right there. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. 
So here's, here's the biggest thing that I learned about this story, and I think it gives such a beautiful picture of God that I was literally in tears as I was researching this stuff. In that honor-shame society, one of the most shameful things, this is true, and I have no idea why, but if you ran, this was a culture of slow. Slow was honorable. So actually, the slower you walked, it would be infuriating to our American society today, the slower you walked, the more honorable you became. The more people viewed you with the distinction. So this father, this owner of this massive estate, would have been a very slow-moving man. And to run carried shame with it. So basically, there's one or two things that the son is thinking as he sees his father running for probably the first time in your life. Have you ever had that moment with your father or a parent, the one who's supposed to be the strong one, and then in some situation, like, they bust into tears, and then you bust into tears because you're like, wait, if you're gone, I'm gone, right? This is that moment where he sees his father do something he's never seen before, and his father is charging towards him. So based upon what really should have gone down, the son is probably thinking, He's going to tackle my butt, right? Like the, He's running at me, and he's going to hurt me, and he doesn't care how shameful that is because he's going to get revenge. He's going to get what he deserves. But here's the courage, and I think this takes a lot of understanding. This is what a lot of us carry as we walk, especially if you're coming back into a faith tradition. We're coming in ready to get pummeled. We're coming in just ready for God to tear us apart. And in this story, from a long way off, this father comes running, sprinting, with this whole village watching. And he comes and he runs, and the first thing he does is he hugs his child. He holds him. We won't read the rest because it's going to take way too long, and I could go on for hours about this, but he holds him, and the son gets half of his argument out of his mouth. He says, the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against you, and I, have sinned, uh, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. It's half the argument that he had in the beginning. And before he can even finish his argument and ask to be a hired servant, the father calls for a ring and a robe. He dressed this man as my son. And then he kills the fattened calf in a time of famine, and he throws a party for him because this son that was dead is now alive. It's a return it was the wilderness and that wild place that actually gave the prodigal the eyes to see. That's what shaped him so that when he came back, he now has a completely different perspective of not only who his father is, but the life he had before. It's a return. It's to say what, it's, it's, it's a return to what heaven had in store all along. What was always supposed to be there is now there because this prodigal went into the wilderness and decided to return. And what he found there blew his ever-loving mind. <laughs> this was a father that wasn't full of rage. This is a father that's full of embrace and grace and love. So if you have a notion of a God that wants to throw a lightning bolt at you, read this story with new eyes. Because the God that we worship is one that as we return, as we are shaped, as we are different, as we come back, he's sprinting after us to embrace us and hold us and love us. And that's the kind of faith tradition I want to be a part of. Let's pray together. God, I thank you uh, for these stories that you've left us with, these rich, beautiful uh, stories that are like, they could be highlighted and underlined just a thousand different times. 
And I thank you for the wilderness, for the periods where we feel stuck, when really you might just be holding us in stillness. And I just pray uh, over this group this morning that uh, as we approach the table that you would uh, truly encounter them um, and that we would, we would walk away with our, our, our sort of thoughts reshaped and, and uh, go back into the world.